Today, we're going to talk about task force, task force construction. Our intent today is have the first or have the second micro method workshop with a content expert on MMIW and MMIP, as well as task force. This is a collaboration with Warcry Podcast. And our sponsor for today is Na Ilahi Fund. This topic can be sensitive and triggering. And welcome back to uh, War Cry Podcast. We're an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation as well as uh, the Yakima Seated area. Thank you for joining us. And we're talking today during the noon hour. My name is Emily Washings. And co-hosts today are Patricia Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowit. And our guest today is Chris Cuestas with the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. Thank you, Emily. Appreciate it. And uh, good day to everyone. And hopefully we are able to get a lot accomplished today. We're going to be getting into the meat and potatoes of task force development and the very difficult and groundbreaking portion was, was our last session. Today, we're gonna to go into the construction of those task forces. As you can see, we have the construction tape ready and we're up and ready to go. This will be task force instruction session two of the micro method workshop. For those of you that were with us last uh, session, we talked about what is a task force? Why do you need task forces? Do task forces work? And we covered quickly what we were gonna look at today. I wanna review that for you in a minute, but we are going to be in a construction zone. So hopefully we're all here ready to roll up our sleeves and put on our, our hard hat and our gloves and move forward and make sure that we are in a position with an open mind and open eyes and ears so that we can systematically go through what it takes to develop a successful task force for your tribal community. And we're gonna show you documents, we're going to talk about steps that you need to take. And remember, one of the things that we forgot last time is that the, the slide, the presentations will be available to you at a, at a later time. But if you see something on the screen that you have an interest to, you can always push screenshot or screen picture. Mine says print screen on it, and it'll give you a, a photograph of that in your screenshot session of your, your computer. So. With that in mind, we need to look at what does our strategic foundation look like? Are, do we, are we building upon something that is solid? Are, uh, we laid the groundwork last session on that firm foundation has to be, number one, what is the task force? Number two, what do we need on that task force? And number three, do these task forces have a recipe of success? And we, we covered, the data and the input and the information that yes, they do work, but we have that groundwork already in place. And like any building that you're going to work on, you need to make sure that that foundation is solid. So that's very important is our, is our foundation solid. Now that we have set the foundation of what a task force is, we need to begin to construct that community-based task force. We're not a group of individuals that are meeting to discuss meetings. Uh, what we're looking at is where the task force is based on resiliency and impact through accomplishments. So we're going to build it that way. We want to build it so that we're, we're strong, 
we're successful, we're resilient, and then we are able to navigate our way to, through the community challenges. So as far as the diagram, what it looks like, stage one, we've already covered what our foundation capabilities are, what, the, what a task force is, does it work, how it works, what difference will it make in our community? Now we want to develop some organizational resilience. The only way we'll be able to do that is to set a very strong building frame. Uh, and we'll talk about how that frame is going to be developed. And then how do we begin to spread our task force efforts and begin to have successful impact within our community setting? So we're gonna go over those things. For, so we'll look at the proper foundation we just covered we want to look at legitimacy and sanctioning of the task force. We're not putting it together just for the sake of having it. We're putting a task force together for the purpose of being successful in working within our community. We need to choose a task force board. How do we go about choosing a board? Why do we need a board? How does a board work? We're going to cover all that. We're going to talk about developing members of the task force and volunteers that support the task force. And then we're going to look at our mission statement. And I'm gonna give you some rules of thumbs for developing a, a mission statement. And then we'll talk you through a worksheet. And then we're gonna go into, once we have that mission statement, how do we, we begin to determine what our goals are and how our goals will help us to successfully reach the objectives that we want to implement for the benefit of our community and what we're targeting. And then the last thing is the administrative operations of that particular group and those elements. We went over proper foundation. Uh, let's talk about legitimacy. It's important to have your task force board uh, recognized by your community, by your local leadership. So it's, it's not only important to have it recognized by your community, but also by your, your leadership that you are developing the task force in. And what the reason for that is this will serve two purposes for the community. Number one, it brings, it recognizes a legitimacy, legitimacy to that task force. It legitimizes the task force. And it also legitimizes the task force to the community. So it's empowering this group to actually take on the challenges of what your mission is. So legitimacy is very important. The second thing that it does for you is it allows you to bring agenda items to the table for action and a response. If you're just a collective of individuals that wants to address community-based issues and you're not recognized or you're not legitimate within that community setting, all these are our suggestions. And you, they don't have to take the time out and seldom do to review what your input is. But if you are a recognized task force and if you are legitimate, then you can put those on the, uh, the leadership as agenda items. And then they have to initiate an action or be responsible for the response of not accepting those recommendations or those uh, or bringing those questions up or wanting responses developed. So being legitimate is very helpful for a task force. It basically empowers you to move forward. So how do you do that? Well, the best way is through tribal resolution. Write up a, a resolution. I'll show you one very simply here. 
you write up a resolution so that tribal it goes before your tribal council and tribal council votes to acknowledge the existence of that task force and the functionality of that task force and that the tribal leadership will support the task force's efforts within the community setting. One of the things that I like to do is I like to request a continuing resolution because if you're going, if you're working, say, uh, for this year, for example, uh, there was just a turnover of leadership through the election process. You could get somebody in the office that, in the position of a leader that doesn't want anything to do with the task force. But if you're on a continuing resolution, they have no choice. The, the task force has to continue. So a continuing resolution allows you to continue through fiscal year, through the fiscal year, and it also allows you to continue whether there's turnover in leadership or not, whether it's a recall or whether it's the regular election cycle or whether you have uh, two or three new council seats that are open for uh, someone to take as well. So it allows the task force to continue and it doesn't cut into your consistency and continuity. And for, for those of us who remember last task force session, we talked about how important continuity is. Because a lot of times in tribal settings, you see a lot of start and stop efforts. They'll start, they'll stop, leadership will interrupt, or they'll start getting close to the problem and it upsets someone. Uh, and they try to figure out a way to undermine the effort. You wanna keep that going. So you need to develop your own continuity. And this action endorses that task force. And it also provides a leverage because we're recognized by tribal leadership. And now we can bring all of our stakeholders to our introductory sessions and to be members of the task force. And now we're not, at, we're not saying that we want them to attend every session because we know because of schedule that that's not feasible, but we want representatives. We want program representatives to attend those sessions so that they are part of what we need from them in order to successfully meet our goals and objectives. So that's, that's what a tribal resolution does. It empowers you, it strengthens you, it recognizes you, and then it gives you the opportunity to secure partnerships within that community from your tribal programs. And, you know, I, I always, when I do the invitation uh, of the task force meeting, I always attach the uh, copy of the, the resolution signed by tribal leadership because it shows them it's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate entity. It's not something that we're just uh, scheduling for the sake of having a meeting. And once you get that legitimacy, then uh, your stakeholders will come to the table. So this is an example. Uh, this is an example of a very simple resolution that we put together when we were working in Turtle Mountain in 2015. And what we wanted them to do was we wanted them to acknowledge that we were, uh, we put together a youth and gang violence reduction initiative. Basically was a strategic plan to respond to the gang and youth violence problem within the tribe. So we wanted, so we were going to need some support from tribal leadership, not money, support. So we put together a resolution so that they could go on record supporting what we were going to be working on. So I wrote the initiative, which was basically a strategic response, a strategic plan, and we got them to accept that. They reviewed the initiative, they accepted the, the initiative, and then they supported the task force to continue 
and uh, work and develop objectives to work towards the youth and gang violence reduction initiative. And you can see that the initiative, right where it says now therefore be resolved, that the Turtle Mountain Tribal Council uh, supports the strategic plan. We wrote that strategic plan that the task force was going to carry out. Uh, so we needed their support, we needed their endorsement, and we needed their recognition. So, and that's what that's what you want from a resolution. Again, if you if this is something that you know a document that you're interested in, just push print screen and it'll save to your your own system. So it's important. Keep that in mind. For you to be legitimate, you have to be recognized by your tribal leadership. The best way to get recognized by your tribal leadership is to develop a tribal resolution signed by the council. And ideally, you want a continuing resolution so that if there's any leadership interruptions, the task force can continue because that's the driving force of a task force is continuity. So choosing our task force board, uh, a community-based task force is operates best as a top-down strategy. I'll show you a graphic in a minute. And what this means, this doesn't mean anything fancy other than there is going to be an established chain of command. And I personally, I appreciate oversight and accountability both ways. So if I'm the facilitator for a task force for a tribe, I not only want to be uh, overseen, but I also want to be accountable to the tribal leadership for what we are implementing for our strategic plan. But I also want that chain to work on my behalf as well, is if I sent items up to the tribal leadership for endorsement and support, I want to make sure that they're following the chain of command as well. And then if not, you find out why or who. And based on that, I believe that the best method excuse me, is to develop what's called umbrella or oversight in the form of a task force board. Now, we're not talking about a huge board because you don't want something that is going to be too hard to manage. So what, it, what it'll look like, it'll look like very simply the umbrella oversight. You have a task force board. Beneath the board is the facilitator. So I have someone to report to and they report to me. So we work in partnership on all of the nuances of the task force. And below that would be the task force members. And below the task force members, those of them that are not community members, is the community. Because the community, remember, is ultimately who you're, who you're looking to empower and who you're looking to support and who you're looking to advise and inform on what the task force is accomplishing. So that is what the umbrella oversight looks like. So your task force board is, is basically who is you're going to be working in conjunction or partnership with. That's the way that I like to see these task forces uh, and the majority of them, all of them that I've put together and that have been successful have operated this way. What does a task force board consist of? You're looking at just a handful of individuals. Ideally, you want between six to eight board members. I've, I've facilitated task force uh, in communities where four or five works. Uh, it's, you could also have maybe one or two alternates. 
Now, where will they come from? A majority of them are going to come from recommendations from tribal leadership. Uh, you want department heads, you want directors, you want administrators, you want individuals connected to private nonprofits, uh, you want law and order representatives, uh, you want tribal courts, community, schools, and colleges. And I've had I've had uh, task force boards that have had youth on it before, and it worked well. The problem uh, occasionally was social schedule. They're obviously not always committed to the task force, but if you can get two or three of them that are interested in the, the community issues, then you can rotate their participation. And again, it, it worked out pretty successfully. The key is, in, in my opinion, is make sure that your board is well-trained. And that there, I actually have a uh, a task force board training that I specifically do for the board development. I said before, and I'll I, I repeat this because it is one of the biggest challenges. It's hard to bring people up to speed once you get going. So getting that board in, getting the time set aside, so that everyone gets into the the introductory educational piece so that you all, you frame out the big picture to them. They, you let them all see what the plan is and how you're going to address the plan. Now their perspectives are important. I want their perspectives. And that's why you need that board so you can get that, their varied perspectives. Well, you know, that's not gonna work here. We tried that 10 years ago. Uh, we don't have the manpower for this. That's, you need that. You need that to, for your task force. but. To get them all task force board trained and certified is really important. So selecting that board, a concrete board, get them trained, even the alternates, get the alternates trained. And then you can move on with the next step. This is what a board looks like. And this is the task force board that we had in Spirit Lake. And we basically break down what their function is. Uh, this this says seven to ten members they may attend the monthly meeting and that they are governed by four officers you need a chair a vice chair who's basically the alternate for the chair a secretary basically to maintain the minutes and to maintain our record and i maintain the task force notebook every task force has a notebook and then a treasurer you, occasionally you'll get a tribe that will give you money to run a task force. And for example, when I, when I started at Spirit Lake, they gave us uh, $30,000 seed money to, for activities, for events, for everything. Well, you, you, you have to have a treasurer that basically, you know, tracks the funding and what we're going to uh, have and use. And we talk about how the board is going to going to operate. It identifies the facilitator, and basically the fact is we're going to work on collaborative projects. That's what a task force board is. So your board's goal should be uh, varied perspectives. That's what you want. You want their different perspectives on the agenda items because that's what you do when when you have a task force meeting scheduled. You meet with the board first. And your board sets the agenda for that task force meeting with the membership. Uh, and they may or may not come. Most of the times they they attend. If the board, if the task force has meet as questions, 
but you want those varied perspective and that varied insight. The task force oversight and, and keeping with the strategic plan. Remember, that's why that introductory training is so important because you're training them on the strategic plan. What are the four things we're gonna go after and then how are we going to do it? And based on that strategic plan, the task force board sets the agenda. And then you determine the direction of the task force. If you remember last time we talked about uh, our last session, we talked about is our task force going to be an issues-based task force or is our task force going to be an activity-based task force? And there's nothing wrong with either one. Or you could be both, dependent upon uh, the maturity of that task force and the uh, talent of your facilitator. And you're delivering, the task force board is delivering the desires of the community. What does the community want to see resolved and solved and responded to within that setting? Uh, next, our next workshop, we'll talk about how do we get that feedback back from the community. Establishing the task force mission statement, goals and objectives, and then that are voted on by the membership. Uh, the task force board, helps to create the mission statement and they help to create the goals and objectives. Those are then placed on agenda items to be voted on by the membership. And then you the task force board also assists determining your membership and determining your volunteers. And we're gonna get into what's the difference between a membership and a volunteer on the task force. Heavy construction, I can see the wood flying, I can see the sparks going because we're cutting into pipe and steel, and that's that's what construction is. That's what we're doing. So members versus volunteers. Members are the body of your task force, and they have a vote. Members have to be trained. They have to participate in the introductory training, and they also get training on the strategic plans. Volunteers provide support for activities and events, but they have no vote. And they don't have a vote, not because we don't want them to vote, it's because their schedule restricts their participation in the regular sessions and in the regular meetings. They wanna be part of the collective and they wanna be part of the solutions within the community. They simply don't have the, the opportunities in their schedule to commit. Members must be present or a representative of that that program or that individual, 10 of the 12 scheduled meetings that you have annually. And most volunteers don't have that time. They're, they're willing to commit, they're willing to assist. So, you know, they're, they're only need to be present during their scheduled event or their scheduled activity. And then you give them their marching orders at that particular activity or that particular event. For example, if you have a march, and if you have a march that's part of your, one of your objectives of your task force, well, you're gonna need volunteers for that. There's no way you'll be able, or if you do a, if you do a crime-free, violence-free, drug-free dance, same thing, or a, uh, uh, a community event with youth, like a, uh, a, a gaming tournament, you're gonna need volunteers for that. So those would be individuals that are willing to give up their time to chaperone, to assist and merely, merely to be a presence. The board members may not have the opportunity to be there. We do encourage board members to, and task force members to show up to many of those 
as they can because they're the they're the face of the task force. But uh, you're going to rely on volunteers for a lot of your scheduled activities. You can reward and acknowledge volunteers uh, if you have the budget to do so. Uh, it's all dependent upon what task force you develop and how you develop it. Where do your task force members come from? Well, there's self-interest regarding the community issues. Uh, as you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of inertia created in tribal settings right now with regards to missing and murdered indigenous uh, women and missing indig indigenous persons. There's also that same type of inertia that's created with regards to drug and sex trafficking. So you're gonna have people that are gonna have a self-interest and are gonna be at the point where they're fed up and they're tired and they wanna get involved. And some of them are gonna to wanna to really get involved feet first. Some of them are not going to have the time. Some of them are just wanting to attend your introductory session, which we'll cover in workshop three. Uh, some of them are going to use that fervor to not only get excited, but to respond with the community. You'll get recommendation for volunteers and members from tribal leadership because they have constituents that are uh, coming forward and asking questions and asking why things aren't being done or why did we stop doing this years ago at work, things of that nature. So, uh, you know, you have to bring those individuals in as well. People that are recognized by the task force board. Remember, we're developing a board that's based of a collective of professionals directors and community-based leaders. So the board will also be able to develop a, uh, a list of individuals that can be uh, recognized. You'll have community activists. The only cautionary issue is that occasionally you'll get some community activists that are, are very, they're fired up and they'll come into the meetings and they'll expose their fire. That's fine. That's okay. I mean, it, it, they have the same opportunity and I think it's it's good to get fired up over certain topics. You know, Emily and I are fired up over the 6,000 plus MMIW cases. I mean, there's no reason for it. So that's fine. Let them come to the, the table. You can, once you get them on board and get them vetted through to become task force members, then you can control, not control, but you can help them manage their excitement and their you know, the things that they have to say. And that's that's fine, I, I don't I have no problem with that. So task force members must review uh, and accept the task force operational agreement. Uh, this may include proper vetting of, of each individual. And someone asked me last week, one of the questions was, how do you make sure that you don't get people that are criminally active or engaging in some of the topics that you are trying to address within the community, not members of the, of the board. Well, that's where vetting comes in. And there are certain ways to do that. You can, if you have tribal courts on your board, or if you have law enforcement on your board, there's ways to go through having them vetted specifically for uh, history. With his, with, that's not a violation of any of their rights. Uh, and it depends upon, depending on the board's acceptance of that application too. And we had a very simple application. There's not a, not a whole lot to it. Yeah, it's very simple. What is the What are the responsibilities of a member? What are the responsibilities of a volunteer? And the second page is basically, give us your information based upon what 
part of the task force you want to be. You want to be an active member. Notice that it says uh, available to attend 10 of the 12 meetings per year. No criminal convictions. You will vote on task force issues. You may hold a task force office position. You may chair a task force subcommittee. You will act as a community liaison with local school districts, programs, so et cetera. You may be trained as a trainer for community presentations, and you will maintain a task force notebook. Again, and the only reason I give them a notebook is I'm not trying to give them the, you know, the secrets of what we're trying to accomplish. The reason I want them to have a notebook is that they understand what the rules and procedures are, the operating procedures of the task force. And they have to sign off when they, when they fill out the application, they have to sign to accept their role as a task force member. And that's how you control those people that disrupt those meetings and all excited and fired up. You basically show that, well, you know, our dialogue is based on our membership and we have three minutes per member that you're, you're available to uh, share with the, with the task force group. So, and a lot of times, be honest with you, three minutes is not enough, and most people just uh, let it go, especially if they're working on something. And if they're working on the task force issues, they feel like they're accomplishing something. And uh, uh, that really tends to uh, calm them down because they're finally getting what they want. They're getting a, they're getting a role, uh, they're getting acknowledged, and they, be, they be, begin to be part of the solution. We're, they may have felt that they've been ignored historically. So the membership, what is a membership? What is a member? What is a volunteer? Second page is the application that you fill out to be a member. Board reviews it and the board says yes or no. And then uh, that's all your, and that's what your answer is. Uh, and then there's a, uh, there's a letter. Uh, I don't know if I added it or not. There's a letter basically saying that you've been accepted as a task force member. Uh, and this is the, first scheduled training for you as a task force member. Please join us. Refreshments and so on and so forth will be made available. Yeah, we have a question asking if it's okay to combine the task force meetings with other community task force, uh, START, DART, and DV uh, to minimize the number of meetings community members are expected to attend in small rural areas. And does the task force have a board or can it be run by members alone? You can combine the, the task force sessions. We used to have a, uh, a drug-free communities uh, group that was, we were partners with them. And because they had such a short agenda on, because they were an activity-based group, we would allow them to uh, present their materials for first. And a lot of the drug DFC people dovetailed with our task force. So we basically uh, let them go through their agenda uh, and then we would uh, start our agenda and they sat through our sessions as well. So yeah, you can, you can, uh, you can share that. And part two was, uh, what was part two again? Uh, does the task force have to be, have to have a board or can it be run by members alone? In order for, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a rule of thumb here. What was the individual's name again? Uh, this was a, uh, Tiffany. Tiffany. A rule of thumb, Tiffany. If you are going to have any partnership or reliance on grant funding, the grant 
auteurs usually want to see a board. They want to see a board. The way DFC set up OJJDP, which is Office of Juvenile Justice Delinquency, and any partnerships with uh, Department of Justice of or Office against Office against Violence Against Women, Office of Violence Against Women, they like to see established boards to be able to allocate funding and resources to. Uh, it's just another layer of protection and just another layer of oversight. So my recommendation and suggestion is, is to have a board, but you don't have to have, again, you don't have to have, uh, I like six to eight, but that doesn't mean you have to have six to eight. You can have two to three members of your task force or your group to be identified as board. All you have to do, if you're going to be getting any funds, all you have to do is have a chair, a co-chair and a secretary so that you maintain an agenda and maintain uh, the subject matter that you cover. And that's enough recognition and acknowledgement to be able to get some allocation of funding from any of those grants. So I hope that answers the question. Okay, mission statements. The mission statement they, it is your general marching orders. What you want to accomplish within the community to engage the challenge. That's what a mission statement is. It's what you want to accomplish within your community to engage what your challenge is. So remember what we talked about, the micro method workshop is a, is a trend halting response. That's a mission statement does the same thing. You wanna to respond to that peaking trend in that community. So your mission statement is going to basically face-to-face -face challenge what your issues are within your community. Oh yeah, you, you think we're gonna allow that to happen? No, our task force is going to directly confront that and this is going to be our mission. Now, let me give you a voice of experience on what a mission statement is or who does it, do not select the community mission statement facilitator. That's not your job. That's a big no, no, no. Because what happens is if there's if it falls short or if there's any challenge or if there's a stumbling block, the facilitator is gonna be held accountable. So what you wanna do is you basically want to be a conduit to the task force on what the mission statement is. Does that make sense? Don't develop the mission statement for them because then that will put the bullseye right between your eyes. Rely on the task force board to develop the mission statement. The facilitator's role is to provide general guidelines for the development of that task force. Once the task force board agrees, then the mission statement becomes an agenda item to be discussed in the task force meet, membership meeting and voted on. Because what you wanna do, it's like when the music stops, you wanna have a chair, right? You wanna have a chair when the music stops. You wanna be the one standing there. So that's the one of the roles of the task force board is to agree on a mission statement, and then make that an agenda item and to for discussion and to have a vote on it. And I actually use a worksheet. 
Here's our worksheet. Basically, a mission statement is a concise description of the overall strategy of the task force. All future goals and objectives are going to be de designed to serve the mission statement. And notice that you give them worksheet to develop that mission statement. So are we gonna empower and support local tribal youth to tribal collaborations, development, enhancement of relationships between professionals and community members? These are all buzzwords that you get from your, your board. And then they, they select it down to the two most acceptable ones to effectively, uh, to affect positive change within the community by reducing the amount of gang involvement and violence through education activities and parental involvement. I can't see, as we enhance existing services. And then you give them terminology. And these are all action words because that's what you wanna have their focus be that a task force is about action. So you give them action words to mix into their mission statement. And you know, empower, leadership, increase, support, cooperate, community, culture, enhance, enrich, vision, assist, local, promote, provide, involve, collaborate, improve. And then you have them come up with a sample. Each board member has a, writes out a sample, and then you take those samples to uh, vote. And then you come up with a working mission statement for the task force. It's got to be a it's got to be a working document. It's got to flow, and it also has to be uh, an action based agreement. Uh, and remember, it's to directly confront the challenge in their community. So, if you're an MMIW task force, then you put that in there. Put that in there as part of your mission statement. This task force was a gang prevention task force, and that was the direction of tribal council. Uh, like we saw back in the uh, resolution. So we put that in there. This is what the problem is. This is how we're going to address it. So of course, the only comment I would have is to ensure that we are reviewing uh, the various documents that the organization has annually. And so the mission statement is also one of those that you would review annually and update as needed. Absolutely, sure. If you decide to broaden your, the issues that you, the task force wants to work on, of course, you're gonna to want to uh, look at potentially changing or expanding that mission statement. But yeah, that's, that's also, you're gonna do the same thing with your objectives too and your goals. You can, you can adjust your goals based upon what your, your success level is. Okay, let's get into goals and objectives. Goals and objectives are the incremental steps that the task force wants to take to achieve success within their community. Here's an example. We will impact drug activity by increasing community prosecutions by 30%, federal prosecutions by 10%, and increase referrals into drug treatment by 40%. So that being what you're going to do, then the task force role would be developing a strategy to decide how we are going to accomplish these three responses. How would we do that? Somebody give me an example. How would you, what would you do to increase community prosecutions by 30%? Have more prosecutors. <laughs> more prosecutors, that's a good one. Yep. Or a specific drug prosecutor. 
have one prosecutor designated specifically for drugs. The other thing you could do is you could have a, a drug court specifically that addresses drug issues. The third thing you could do is you can uh, meet with your federal prosecutor, federal prosecutor to find out why, where cases are being stovepiped and why they're not being uh, pursued. And then having some of those cases sent back to the state or the tribe to uh, respond to in the form of an alternative disposition. What about increased referrals for treatment? What could we do to increase treatment opportunities by 40%? How about contracts? How about writing contracts with offenders? You can write a contract with an offender. You can have uh, under HUD zero tolerance policy for housing. You can connect their successful completion of treatment to their housing agreement and the availability of their home. The other thing you could do is you could bring uh, resources, treatment resources on a, a weekly or even a monthly uh, open session from larger mu municipality, have them sub subcontract to the tribe for those people that don't like the organized or the, the, the tribal treatment process. You could, you could pay a contractor to come in and have individual sessions for specific and special cases. You can also incentivize uh, your treatment participation to where they, you are able to provide stipends for people that register and go, in, will go into treatment and the stipend will be based upon successful completion. You can also, for community prosecutions, you can also add a community service component to where they are given an alternative disposition for completing a community service project. That's still a successful prosecution of a, uh, of a drug charge. So there's different and various ways to achieve those reductions through specifying your goals and specifying what your objectives are going to be. So that's what the role of the task force is. What do we have to implement? Oh, one of the other things that you can, to address both all three of those issues is code revision. Look at your existing code adjust your code specifically. Either way, whichever way you think is, uh, is what the challenge is and what they're, why they're escaping specific consequences or do you have so much uh, recidivism? Just responding to recidivism will increase community prosecutions by 30%. So there's just, there's just varied ways to accomplish these incremental uh, percentage reductions. So, and that's the task force's role. And that's what you'll do is you'll see, you'll see your task force begin to latch on to the objectives and the goals. Well, if we tried this, you know, if we tried a warrior society to where we started mentoring our young, our young, our young people more successfully uh, and just things of that nature, or if we developed a, a private nonprofit so that we can begin to bring funding in to provide additional alternatives for youth. You know, that's what your task force is going to take on is how do we accomplish those things? And then based upon what the objectives and the goals are, then the task force board then picks off which they think to be the most pressing. And then you just develop subcommittees. We're, we're gonna talk about subcommittees in our next session, but uh, subcommittees is how you get a lot of the hard work, if you wanna call it, accomplished. So. 
you want to examine, you want to begin by examining what is actually achievable and what resources are you going to need to accomplish your objectives? And then how are you going to measure your success? We talked about quantitative data last session we had, but when you start getting specific to your objectives, then you need to start developing a formula to be able to show that you're having incremental success on your task force objectives. And then where do you begin? You know, where and how do you begin? And uh, again, our next session is going to be, how do we get this, how do we get this ball rolling? But it's important to have a roadmap. You have to have a roadmap. And the roadmap is the strategic plan. You have to keep that in the rearview mirror when you're functioning as a task force. What is our strategic plan? And how are we going to achieve those, uh, those long range opportunities to be successful? St the strategic plan is what keeps you on task. I'll give you an example. I usually tell, when I start with a task force, uh, we're going back to how we established what our, what our mission statement was. I usually start my task force with four objectives. I don't wanna give them a lot to chew on to start with. I mean, you can easily give them 15 objectives. That's easy to do, but I wanna start with things that they can accomplish. For example, maintaining task force sustainability, develop a subcommittee to begin to look for grant opportunities and begin to do PSAs or do community-based workshops so that they know that we're in existence and that we're working for them. We're working on behalf of the community. We're doing these workshops to empower parents. We're doing these workshops to empower the schools. Uh, we're doing these workshops to empower and support those individuals that now have got supervision and got responsibility now for young people that they did not, based on the circumstances, did not prepare for, that they've become guardians. So now they have to reparent all over again in a new generation of youth with a new set and a new generation of challenges. So reinvigorating and re-empowering the guardians, the community guardians that are oftentimes grandparents and uncles and aunts, uh, because you can't just have a kid because there's no one else available. You still are going to have to parent and you still are gonna to have to supervise. Increase youth access to activities. We talked about that, youth interventions. And that's a real key is developing youth interventions. I'm a, form, I'm a firm believer that a task force has got to be a deployable task force. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy the most as a task force facilitator is uh, developing a task force, telling the community that we're going to respond to their homes and knock on their doors and check on their kids, and then actually see, have them see our faces when it actually happens. Because a lot of times they don't see that, that level of commitment. And that's what we wanna do. We wanna show them that we're committed to them, committed to their family, committed their, to their kids. Increase parent education by doing quarterly. And that's all I would, I would, I would not get into doing monthly community-based events because there's, there's a lot to take on, especially the first two years of the task force. Uh, start off by partnering, uh, partnering with other community uh, back-to-school events, recreational events, co-hosting, co-hosting a basketball tournament or a gaming tournament or a youth walk or a retreat or a cultural event just to get started. And once you 
you develop a, a process and a protocol and you have your volunteers on board and, and you get to see what the talent level of your task force participation is, then you can start to host individually task force related events and activities. Do you have any questions? So first, I want to thank you for teaching me re what recidivism means. I had to look that up. I was like, what does recidivism oh. mean? <laughs> the tendency of a convicted criminal to re-offend. Um, and again, these are just like, I had no idea what that meant. And uh, you used it a few times, so I thought I'd look it up. Let's see. So with that, I also wanted to know in your process, when should you start your community assessment in this process? And should this be an ongoing assessment like yearly or every other year in order to measure progress? I like to see an assessment every 18 months because then you actually have some quantitative data that you can start. It'll, that data will tell you if the problem is getting worse and whether your impact is actually, you have to adjust your impact or you have to be more aggressive or pull back on certain issues and become more aggressive than others. For example, if I was to do an assessment, a reassessment right now, because of the challenge of ISO and P2P, which are two of the new drugs that are entering into the market that the cartels are introducing in the tribal communities through the Sinaloa cartel and also through that are very heavily being overdosed right now. And one of the other problems with uh, ISO is they're finding ISO on uh, marijuana that's sold through uh, legitimate businesses uh, that people are overdosing on. So if I was to reassess now, I would try to track uh, or gain data on whether or not those two products have made it into the particular tribe I was dealing with. Chances are it's true, it, it has, but I'd have to probably get with the, uh, the clinic, IHS clinic to see what the what the overdoses, what they're coming in as. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the overdoses right now are coming in as unknown because the product is so new to the market. You can actually import ISO legally right now because the uh, FDA and alcohol and the, the uh, DEA have not had the time to place that new drug on the register as being a dangerous narcotic drug. So they're, uh, you know, they're taking full advantage of the window that they have to get it in the United States. So that's what, that would be my focus right now is P2P and ISO and the impact within our, our community and then how we can offset the, the use of that either through testing or education or getting into our, our uh, marijuana dispensaries and doing some educational pieces for them as well so that they're aware of, they need to be better, they need to vet better who they're who they're purchasing their product from that's going into the community. So thank you. If, this, if that answers your question. Yes, thank you. And since we're on the topic of task force construction, for those of you that aren't on our video portion of this podcast, in the background, Chris has construction tape X'd out behind him uh, to emulate the theme today. And I had a question about how quickly you've seen a task force happen um, from assembling members of the task force to the first meeting, or conversely, for those of us that are feeling a little slothy, how slowly? I would say it takes uh, a good month to start a task force. 
your first introductory session should be from the time you begin, you should probably have it by the end of that session. It all depends upon how long it takes to get the feedback from the community, number one, and number two, how long it takes for your facilitator to develop the assessment and the strategic plan. But I would say a month to two months is reasonable. If I was doing it, one to two months. Thank you. Uh, Lucy or Patricia, do you have a question? I had a question, um, and this will probably take some time to discuss with the task force. Um, you covered the role of volunteers. However, I just wanted to highlight the fact that family volunteers, I think, have been very beneficial to any organization. And so to have them not be a, a voting member, I think, is an, an issue. And and I would hope that our messages would really have a strong support system for family volunteers who are in the community and who are doing the work, you know, and just going about what needs to be done in terms of missing and murdered Indigenous people, you know, despite the formalities of government agencies and, you know, law enforcement. I think that, you know, deserves a whole conversation. Yeah, Thank it's you. just the, the only problem with the volunteer is just their their schedule. I mean, their energy is great. Their involvement is vital. It's just and, and one of the things we do is we show them basically, you know, what is the requirements of full membership. And, it, you know, we leave the decision to them. I mean, and now with all of the technological advances, Participation can just be a, you know, going reviewing a pre-recorded task force meeting, but that's always been a challenge because we try to always bring elders into our task force because we want the historical and cultural perspective. But a lot of them have a hard time getting to our sessions. You know, if you can come up with a a strategic way to make them more actively uh, reviewing the the session because the the training is the key you have to have that training especially when it comes to what the strategic plan is because trust me it is very difficult when you start off with the task force and then you have an entirely different audience the following month because they didn't get to that particular first session and then six months down the road you got another different audience that's coming to your session. Uh, it's, it's like you you're can't move forward because you have to spend time bringing people up to speed on, on what the task force is, how you, and, and they'll ask questions. They'll, they'll ask you questions like, well, you know, how, how did you guys become a task force? Or where did you come from? And, you know, how were you accepted? And, and then just having to go back and retrace all of the progress that's been made. That's why it's important. There, if there's a way that you could have a, a website or have a, a screen page where everyone can read what has already accomplished, been accepted and accomplished within the task force. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have notebooks too. We have each person gets a notebook, even a volunteer gets a task force notebook so that they see from page one how it started and what's been done to a certain point. But that specific training with regards to uh, interventions, 
and uh, staffing youth and school interventions and how to respond to referrals and how to engage with youth and parents with a uh, responding to a, uh, a task force referral. That those are all critical pieces of training that task force members have to have. So if there was a way to manage that, because we don't want people knocking on doors that are not trained on on their not only their own personal safety, but on what you know we want to see the task force dialoguing with families about, because we want to keep everybody on the same level of material information. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I do with with our at-home interventions and our parent interventions is I'll take members of the task force with me so that they can get comfortable on how I how I interact, how I dialogue, how I document, and how we are, we, you know, we get different issues resolved with parents so that the next time they feel comfortable in being able to do so. Because the thing is, is you want, you want the task force to function whether or not there's a task force meeting or whether or not the facilitator's present. You still want that task force to function. You still want the task force to uh, accept the referral and follow the protocols for the referral because your 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 strategy is to be stopgap for the risk factors of the individual and of the family. So you want that task force to continue, and that's training. So if there's ways to uh, circumvent that or address that or get them connected to that, by all means, it's not a problem for, of them being an active member and a voting member. So good question, though. Good input. I bring that up also. I'm just thinking about uh, communities where it's rural, remote, and a significant tribal population uh, is important. I recall one of the questions that was asked around a small, maybe a small community, but significant uh, community population lives there. And so I'm just, you know, one program that I'm thinking of is a program like Head Start, which is typically in our communities, and it's dependent upon parent volunteers and community volunteers. And so, and it's a hub. And so yesterday on one of the consultations, I made that recommendation that they consider, you know, the important role of community volunteers, but also uh, bring in violence prevention for the entire community not just for Head Start families, but for the entire community because they're the hub, they're the like the community center. So just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good idea. Thank you, Patricia. Appreciate that. That's a good insight. I just wanted to say in this process too, where would you, or actually I have a question, where would you incorporate like memorandums of understanding or memorandums of agreement um, for the task force to have access to some of the data that our community programs have? Yeah, that's uh, that's what we're going to cover in our next session. How do you get that that data? How do you compile that data? Is it, and what do you need? We'll, we'll do the same thing. I'll I'll put up some sample MOUs so that you can show what the purpose of that data is, as opposed to gathering it for the purposes of gathering it. So, Great. good question, Lucy. Lucy, glad glad you're jumping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to cover it, our second micro-method workshop. Uh, please join us for our upcoming micro-method session. Uh, we're going to be covering operating procedures. We're going to co cover memorandums of understanding. 
We're going to uh, cover dialoguing with programs and also uh, surveys, community-based surveys, and strategic planning. How do you get that strategic plan in place? So if if you uh, will be using the same platform for upcoming sessions, but if you are interested in any other assistance, please feel free to contact us at the Warcry podcast at gmail.com or nvprcviolencepreventioncom at gmail.com. And uh, again, we are going to provide copies of these slides so you will be getting them in a timely manner. Operational procedures, community assessments, community-based surveys, compiling supportive data, which includes MOUs and sustainability. There's gonna be more construction in our next session. So we all need to wear our hard hats and bring our gloves. We should all be uh, all ready to go for our last session, which is actually going to be specific and oriented to MMIW, MIP investigations and case solvability and give you some, some tools for success. So I appreciate everyone that's in attendance. I thank you. Uh, I especially wanna thank War Cry Podcast and our sponsors. Uh, and I'll let uh, someone from Warcry uh, conduct our ending piece. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Chris. If at any point during these uh, micro uh, workshops you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Helpline at 1 844 762 8483 or you can chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. Uh, again, War Cry is an indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I am Emily Washings, and thank you to co-hosts Robin Pibashi, Lucy Smartlowit, and Patricia Whitefoot. And thanks to our guest, Chris Questus from the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. For our credits, we have support from Na Ilahi Fund. This episode is edited and produced by Robin Pibashi of Pibashi Studio. Music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa. Logo and shirts by John Alney Schellenberger, where you can also get our native anthro merch. And please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. It really helps us out. <laughs>